This is it, a huge game-changing episode of Game of Thrones, Jon Snow alive. We can finally talk about that. Ramsey Bolton, unfortunately, also still alive. It's a big week for both the Bastards of Westeros and a big week for EW2. We just announced our uh, Kit Harington exclusive cover interview, which was secretly in the making for a long time, so we'll talk about that. Um, Editor-at-large, James Hibbard. Uh, and I'm senior writer Darren Franich. And James, uh, I'm feeling personally betrayed here. I thought we were friends, man. I thought you told me everything. I thought that, you know, you'd, you'd always be honest with me. How could you keep this secret from me, from everyone, probably, for so long? I mean, to to come from watching this episode reeling from the fact that he was, in fact, coming back to life. Then I go to the EW.com website to see, oh, my, my podcasting buddy probably knew about this for a long time. <laughs> Honestly, one of the toughest things is you kept asking me questions about Jon Snow on the last two podcasts. I kept trying to dance around it and inside I'm going, quit asking me about that because there's, you know, there's so much to say and so little that I could say. I mean, you know, in the end of the episode, it's like Jon Snow does this big gasping inhale. And that's kind of how I feel because I feel like I've been holding my breath for seven months uh, waiting to talk about this A and B thinking uh, with every uh, Game of Thrones Google alert on my phone that, okay, now it's going to leak. Now it's going to leak. And amazingly, although, you know, a lot of people figured he was probably coming back, nobody knew for sure, and they didn't know how. And you got to experience it totally cold while I, you know, knew about it in advance. So so I think that's interesting because we have two different, very different perspectives on a huge episode. So I think we should start by breaking down this episode and talking about the major parts of it. And then in the second half, we'll switch gears. We'll talk about a little bit about our uh, Harrington cover story that goes behind the scenes of how they pulled this off, uh, as well as do our trivia question to give away the Blu-ray and answer some of a listener's questions. One thing that I want to discuss here, James, is that, um, you know, the Jon Snow storyline now, we're agreeing to call it that because, you know, Jon Snow, you know, he's a handsome boy, he's, uh, you know, glamorous, he's a hero, but of course, you know, us hardcore fans know this is really just a continuation of, of the Davos Seaworth storyline, and um, at the beginning of this episode, we sort of saw what I think was kind of the last climactic moment in the teasers for this season, the sort of Davos versus uh, Night's Watch watch traders face off gave him a great hero moment but this also uh led to the reintroduction of a character who frankly i'm always shocked that like he isn't just always around because he always seems to solve things we had some great one one time in this episode didn't we james yeah, he he totally did the like Loki Hulk smash move with the with the archer that dared put an arrow into him. <laughs> there were two different head smashes in, in the first ten minutes of this episode, and that one was definitely. Yeah, I know it's just like it was a very bad day for being smashed into walls. What was Alistair Thorne's like plan in, in, in all of this? Like, like do you think like they were gonna like burn Jon Snow and then just kind of keep on being the Night's Watch, or were they gonna burn Jon Snow and then kind of declare themselves like? you know, petty little little dictators of the northernmost corner of, of the north. I, I, I kept on kind of like going back and forth on to what extent he was doing this to sort of maintain the watch and to what extent he was just kind of like, we're, we're on a kamikaze run now. We're just going to have as much fun as we can before the apocalypse happens. 
You know, that's a good question, but he's always been such a Night's Watch loyalist to some degree, and that's just been, you know, the governing force in his life that, I mean, I, you know, I always sort of defend Thorne a, a, a little bit in, in, in these conversations. A, a bold defense of Alistair Thorne, one of the most loathed characters on the show. I, I, I can go along with that. He's he's a pragmatist, and he's like one of those Shades of Grey characters that that if Jon Snow wasn't around, that we might be in a situation where we're kind of rooting for, like we root for, like, you know, uh, Jamie Lannister or other people. What was interesting here, James, is that coming after the end of episode revelation last week about Melisandre and the nature of her magic was we got, in this storyline, we had a really interesting moment, um, I I thought. You know, we've talked about how as we get deeper and deeper into this story, uh, you know, both in A Song of Ice and Fire and now in Game of Thrones, um, you know, there's more magic and more mysticism. You know, dragons are alive again, and there's a lot of talk about different gods. And I, I felt as if Davos Seaworth was sort of talking for all of us when he was telling Melisandre, like, listen, like, all I know is that, you know, you definitely have some kind of a power, Melisandre. He was sort of, it was interesting to see him sort of coax her out of what seemed like a real existential crisis. Um, we've seen so much, like, between the two of them. Uh, how did that kind of play for you? The former Stannis acolytes uh, sort of joining forces again. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, all this time, you know, uh, Sir Davos and Melisandre have had this contentious uh, relationship and you get the feeling that the last thing that he wants is for her to be this powerful, scary witch with all this control. And then he's going in there like... Why won't you be a powerful, scary witch? Why can't you be what I have not wanted you to be, you know, pretty much throughout the entire show up until this point? It's like, now I actually need you to be that. Now I actually want you to be that. And you're like sitting there all bummed out and, you know, you know, staring in the mirror with your with your necklace off on occasion. So, um, yeah, it was it was interesting to see him him pull her out of of her depression, really. And, you know, your point about the gods is interesting because, you know, there was that wasn't the only reference to that in this episode. There's also. Uh, the conversation with uh, Jamie and uh, the High Sparrow, which uh, riffed on this similar notion in terms of, you know, do the gods care? To what role do the gods actually play in people's lives? I'm so glad, James, uh, uh, just to, to quickly call out one of my favorite parts of, of your recap. Uh, in that Jamie Sparrow conversation, which for me really felt like, you know, every now and then on Game of Thrones, we get a Pacino and De Niro in heat moment of these two characters who've been separate very powerful for a while finally meet that had you know there was kind of that quality to their meeting and uh, you know the high sparrow was talking all about how oh like uh, you know us faceless poor people you know we don't have any families but we can topple an empire I think it was in your recap you referred to him as as Bernie Sparrow uh, which I was which I was quite 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 tickled by there there is the notion of uh, you know the high sparrow is now leading his own kind of class revolution if the iron bank is too big to, to fail it's too big to exist <laughs> yes exactly okay but but wait, James, I, before we leave the North, uh, one of the things that I really liked about the Melisander and uh, Davos conversation was I like how Davos 
basically told her exactly what we were all thinking. He basically said, your magic, I don't really know what the deal is with your magic, but I assume you can bring someone back to life. So so can you can you just try to do something like like along those lines? <laughs> right. And mystically, it, it did seem to work. I, I what what do we I mean, we'll talk about this more later, but your kind of just like initial reactions, the idea that Jon Snow is back to life. We have seen someone brought back to life using the the power of the Red God. I, and we know that like when that happens, it's not necessarily the greatest thing ever. Like people are never are never really quite the same. Um so I, I that's a, it's interesting that you know we literally just cut right as he comes back to life with no no further indication of uh what of of, of what his state of mind is, shall we say. I, I think it, it's a safe bet that he's probably not going to be exactly the same and is going to be impacted by this. And actually, that's one of the things we'll we get into in our, you know, not not to pimp it, but but our cover story. We spent some time on the set of uh, uh, season six talking to Harrington on set. And, uh, you know, it's it's definitely an interesting thing they have planned, because as, as he pointed out, if he came back and everything went back exactly the way it was before, then what would be the point in his character dying? <laughs> and so that was very much something that was, uh, you know, on the minds of uh, Kit Harrington and on the minds of of the writers. You know, another thread, too, out of this and not to jump over to it entirely, but Balin Greyjoy, obviously, you know, he is one of the three uh, kings that Melisandre cursed back in season three with throwing those leeches into the fire. And then, you know, the first two died, Joffrey and Rob, but Balin didn't die. And so there's a sort of thought of, well, was that just showmanship or was she working some sort of magic there? And so to have that happen in this episode, too, was interesting because Booker has been waiting for this to happen for a long time for, for, for Balin Greyjoy to, to kick off. You know, so it brings to to mind once again this idea of are the gods actually involved or is it just things that humans are doing and they're just attributing things to 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 uh, to the gods? All the kings that died were at the hands and machinations of other characters, but at the same time, those three people she cursed now are all dead, and as soon as that you know, finally happens, you know, then we have this scene, even though she doesn't know that happened, we have this scene where she kind of rallies and is able to use uh, her power or the Lord of Light's power, you know, to bring back this character. Here's my issue. Like, listen, I, I can understand Melisandre having sort of a minor ex- existential crisis, but like, Listen, lady, you ha- you have done actual magic. Like this is you know this is not a matter of somebody you know you've you you have given birth to a like murder monster and, and you know you have like there are certain elements of of fundamental truth in whatever magic you're doing. Frankly, at, at this point, Melisandre, you might be the god for all I know. <laughs> Maybe it's time for you to go and set up your own sort of minor cult of personality. Here's a question though: Does doing this make the threat? of death diminished on Game of Thrones? Does playing this card for a major character uh, sort of make the stakes seem lower moving forward? The short answer, James, is yes, it, it, it totally does. Uh, the, the, the longer answer is, you know, 
the core of the end of this story, and, you know, who knows how close we are to the end, but the idea of people coming back to life, you could argue it is right there in the opening minutes of Game of Thrones. Admittedly, you know, the White Walkers bringing people back to a sort of half-life, that's not quite the same as, you know, Kit Harington suddenly opening his eyes at the end of an episode. But there's always kind of been this idea of, you know, this is a world where resurrection is possible, and perhaps even this is a world where, on a more character level, transformation is possible. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people who aren't as big of fans of the later books t- tend to diminish is, in the later books, you really see a lot of characters trying to change themselves. And, and you know, Tyrion is, you know, going through a state of transformation, and, and Jamie Lannister is really kind of transforming. So I think if they can weave in the idea of... Yes, Jon Snow is back to life, so to a certain extent, this is the kind of Gandalf coming back to life moment where, you know, it's kind of like, okay, maybe death isn't as important as we once thought. But if there's a way to kind of really weave in the idea that he's a different person, and, you know, not for nothing, too, like, you know, they're, they're doing this towards the end of the show, so it, 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 it seems to me as if it's understood this is a one-time thing. Or, at, at the very least, in the episode where Jon Snow comes back to life, I'm not immediately thinking, oh, man, great, like, next up they're going to bring back Bruce Bolton, you know? So, because also, again, I mean, the reason why I don't think anybody really thought Jon Snow was going to stay dead was last year they specifically added in the hard home sequence, which ends with Jon Snow facing off against the Night's King in a in a way that on a very deep level you just felt like these characters will meet again. And what better way for, you know, for, for a, a sort of scary, freakish creature overlord who may be undead or certainly commands the undead. It seems like it makes a certain amount of poetic sense that, that the person to face him eventually should also himself have experienced death? No, I like that point. And uh, one thing I would add is obviously they, the showrunners added in a lot of hints about the thread of who is Jon Snow's mom in season five. And so once that element started to play into the story, it really started to signal that unless it's a total fake out, that at some point was going to pay off. And the other thing that sort of first sort of made me really start to doubt that he was gone was in his death scene, they didn't stab his face. They didn't stab his neck. They didn't do anything above the shirt collar. He was kept pretty even in death. And so for that, I was just like, you know, Thrones, when they stab somebody, they they have this tendency to just to just mess up a, a person in some sort of permanent visual way. And uh, in this case, by not doing that, that was sort of one of the first big rumblings of, wait a second, you know, b- between that and Melisandre being back at Castle Black, even being uh, told by everybody, because by the end of season five, um, you know, I was told just like everybody else, oh, he's dead. He's totally dead. I immediately start going, okay, wait a second. This is probably not what it seems. I was sort of hoping that that they would do to him what they did to Tyrion in the books. And like, you know, he, he would still be alive, but but he'd have no nose. Just just no nose for, for the rest <laughs> of for the rest the of nose. his story. <laughs> and to your point about whether death will still matter moving forward, you know, I agree. I feel like this is a card that they know is a big card to play for a major character. I feel like it's very unlikely they would play it a second time. And one pet theory I've had is that one of the reasons 
they were probably reluctant to do Lady Stoneheart is because in the back of their minds, they knew they were going to be doing this. Well, when I watch the opening credits, I'm always waiting to see if there's going to be a new place featured or or a place that we haven't seen in a while. Uh, When I saw Pike and the Iron Islands at the beginning of of this episode, like everybody, I'm sure I I squealed with joy. We once again saw uh, Balon Greyjoy and Yara, a.k.a. Asha, um, and uh, got to kind of check in with them. Seems like things are not going too well for the Greyjoys, and that's before Balon walks out. And uh, I sort of liked how the way they shot the scene between Balon and person to be na- um, to be named later, it looked exactly like when Han Solo walks out to meet uh, Kylo Ren in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Oh, that's a good reference, yes. I'm excited too because... Uh, we sort of saw Yara uh, at her father's funeral. You know, she naturally assumes that she'll be taking over, and she's kind of immediately told, like, well, you know, there's going to be a King Smoot. And I, I like how, uh, you know, sh- she was told, listen, maybe you'll be the first woman ever to be in charge of the Iron Islands. Um, but, you know, this thing's called a King Smoot. So, you know, you, you, you do get a little bit of, we were talking last week about how, you know, Danny is now finding herself in this sort of, like, horrifically kind of sexist, uh, political landscape, and it seems like you know that's a thread they're very much picking up with the Greyjoys. Also, maybe this is a way we can extend the uh, the U.S. primary election uh, metaphors by saying you know, like Hillary Clinton, she assumes she should be president, but she has to go through a pesky election <laughs> first. Where should we pop to next uh, on the map of the known world? I think we really have to to zoom over to Winterfell and talk about what happened with Ramsay because, you know, as I point out in my recap, only Game of Thrones would stage one of the most horrific on-screen murder scenes that you've ever seen. And then at the end of the episode, you're just going, yay, Jon Snow is back and you're ecstatic. (laughs) I mean, that is quite the roller coaster of emotions to like lead people down to that dark of a place. And then at the end of the episode, have people going, dead baby? What dead baby? Jon Snow's back. (laughs) How do you feel about Ramsay at at, at this point? Is there any element of his character that is even remotely redeemable now? Because he really stands alone. It's like him and, like, you know, Frankenstein Mountain kind of stand alone as just two incredibly loathsome in every way characters. I thought it was interesting because I've been talking like a like a total maniac about the idea that, you know, we're, we were heading towards a major kind of Bolton Lannister showdown, and I, I assumed that Roos was going to be a big part of that. Boy, was I wrong! <laughs> yeah, and we had the first hint of a potential Jon Snow uh, versus Ramsay sh- showdown, a, a, a war between uh, the bastards, and uh, what's, you know, interesting about that is the entire time they're talking they're assuming Jon Snow is still alive and we're watching that scene thinking oh you people don't know what you're talking about this is so sad you know uh, he's actually dead and you don't even know yet but by the end of the episode if you go back and watch that scene you're like oh actually they're now right again even though they were wrong when they said it so the scene plays totally different watching it 
a second time after you watch the ending. I mean, I'm going to call it out right now. I think Ramsey's dead by the end of this season. I think that, like, I, I really expected, like, the Bolton uh, dynasty was going to become a key part of, like, the final phase of the Game of Thrones storyline. And I, I feel as if now he's he's on a real sort of just, this is his sort of final run that he's on now. And, uh, you know, no, no disrespect to Ramsey Bolton, but if I have to choose which bastard I'm going to bet on, it's probably the one who's already been dead once. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anticipating like this is we're, we're entering some sort of final phase for the, for the Ramsey Bolton storyline going forward. <laughs> While we're in Winterfell, I'm sure like anybody who's any kind of a hardcore fan for this saga, maybe even more mind blowing than the Jon Snow resurrection uh, was something that we had teased a little bit in earlier episodes of this podcast. We are now seeing the past of Westeros. We are seeing into the history of the, uh, these characters and and these characters' parents in a way that we really haven't before. Well, it's just so fascinating because this is a show that has always avoided doing flashbacks. Uh, the showrunners don't like to do flashbacks. Last year, they did the prophecy scene with uh, Cersei and, and Maggie the Frog. And they were like, well, that's not actually a flashback because it opens the entire season. So we're not actually flashing back to anything in this, too. There, there's a narrative reason for for doing this, because, you know, it's not just flashing back to something. It's brands there. You know, he's witnessing it. And we are, we're not only seeing what happened in the past, but we're also processing it through the eyes of a current character and what you know he's seeing impacts him and this is sort of a you know writer geeky way of looking at but it's a very interesting way of incorporating uh the past into the show in a way that doesn't feel like you're just showing a random scene from a long time ago it's doing it in a way that that keeps the current story moving forward too Absolutely. And in your recap, James, you kind of compared it to the end of Godfather Part 2, um, which, you know, w- one of the reasons why that scene in, in, in Godfather 2 is powerful is it's not like anything really happens there, but our knowledge of what will happen to all these characters and, you know, what is awaiting the Corleone family in their future, it really lends it to so much sadness. And it's kind of the same way here. I mean, you know, the, the Cersei scene last season, that was, you know, a scene that was intended to hit you you on all levels like in a way this is very much teaching you uh, about the kind of pathology and, and the sort of real sadness of Cersei in a way this scene was more just kind of like look at this you know look at these characters you know they're having so much fun oh and by the way uh, that's Le- that's Lyanna Stark and she's not going to end well and that's Benjen Stark and who knows what's going on with him and that's Ned Stark and boy oh boy he's he's also not going to end well and and I like how just we were aware of the fact that, that you know we were seeing the Starks then we also met young Hodor back when he could talk. So it was just like, oh, this is just so many cute little kids who are going to have horrifying lives for the foreseeable future from here. Yeah, and that's a very interesting thread. Uh, Hodor as young Willis. Bran asks, what happened to you? So you have to wonder, is at some point that question going to be answered? Usually in in shows, if if you pose a question, you eventually answer it. So hopefully at some point we'll we'll get the answer, answer to that. James, cover story, Entertainment Weekly, yes. Kit Harrington on the cover. So much to talk about here. Uh, what is your cover story all about? The story is a behind-the-scenes chronicle of Game of Thrones' plan to kill off and then bring back 
Jon Snow. And a uh, Kit Harrington interview is, is the front comes front and center in this because he was really at the heart of this the entire time. And it's you know it's not just about the show, but also what it means to be in a position where you have to tell a rather big deception about a huge part of your life and how that deception started out as seeming like, okay, this won't be a big deal. And it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And the effect that that had on Kit and, and, and all that he had to sort of go through to pull this off. I've been obsessed with, with, uh, with getting the story. I, uh, I, I found this whole, Thing fascinating uh, is Jon Snow dead became the you know who shot Jr. of the 21st century. I mean, even President Obama asked uh, Director David Nutter, "Hey, you didn't really kill Jon Snow, did you?" It became such a pop culture obsession, and right at the heart of that was this actor who's so devoted to what he does and is so passionate about what he does. And here he had to do something which is very much in conflict with the type of person he is. I mean, the one thing he doesn't like to feel is is inauthentic. And he had to, on a very personal level with a lot of people he cares about, tell him things that, that were untrue for a really long period of time. Now, uh, James, on EW.com right now, people can go there and watch a video uh, of Kit Harrington sort of speaking to fans. Uh, this video looks to me as if it was shot on the backyard of the world-famous Hibbert Estate uh, in, in Austin, Texas. <laughs> um, where exactly uh, did you talk to him? And, like, you know, when, when did this happen? And, uh, you know, what was the kind of nature of what I can only imagine is, like, the most top-secret meeting of your career as, as our Westeros correspondent? Yeah, there are lots of meetings about, uh, you know, and negotiations that, that, that went on. But, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, we actually shot that in uh, on a ranch in California in February. So uh, we, we flew out there and the cover idea for it was that we were doing this photo session because he was being uh, in a play in London. So that was the cover story for for that photo shoot is that, you know, we're shooting him for this play. You'll notice on the cover that he's not dressed in character. Normally, our covers, actors are usually in, almost always, in dressed as the characters they are in the film or show that they're in. You know, in this case, you know, as, as part of that whole uh, deception, he, he, was, uh, he, he was dressed in, in normal clothes. Obviously, James, I am kind of of two minds where on one hand, I want to know everything about what's coming up for Jon Snow. On the other hand, you know, part of the fun of watching this show is not knowing necessarily what's happening. Um, but uh, to what extent does your story kind of get into uh, what is next for uh, our, our, our favorite bastard up north? Pretty much every episode is pretty dramatic in terms of his storyline. So it's hard to get, you know, too uh, forward spinning given all that's coming. But we do talk about um, how does death potentially change Jon Snow from a character level. And I think that's very interesting. This was something that you, you know, even within the sort of like subterranean confines of Entertainment Weekly, this this was something that you kept very, very secret, correct? Yeah, literally, I only told our two top editors who I needed to tell to get approval for a cover story. And one issue was, you know, we're already doing a Game of Thrones cover story before the season started. We did a cover story in the Women of Game of Thrones. Normally, we never do two covers for a TV show in the same season, particularly so close together. And the other issue was we weren't the only outlet that wanted uh, this interview. So, you know, thankfully, our, our, our editors uh, totally saw the value in this and were hugely supportive. And thankfully, uh, Kit, you know, you know, agreed to trust us to tell his story. 
we talked about this a little bit, uh, but I didn't even realize what I was asking you. You must have done some like like you know Mr. Robot level uh, you know methodologies to kind of like like protect this this information, right? Like you know, did you have like 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 you know like fake laptops and uh, you know triple authentication codes? Yeah, I was very conscious of trying to keep this a secret. I actually got a little bit paranoid about it. I I kept everything uh, in an encrypted folder on a flash drive that I labeled Second Coming. Uh, but uh, and also uh, this is kind of embarrassing. There was like a two month period from when I did my first onset reporting in October to when I needed to open the uh, encrypted folder. And I had this really horrible day where I couldn't remember the password I created for that. We've all had that experience where you can't remember a password. But, of course, I didn't write it down because it was too secret to write down. So I spent a day in growing terror trying password after password. I called Apple to see if there's a way of forcing it open. They're like... No, dude, that's what encrypted means. It's designed for you not to be able to force it open. I, you know, you mentioned Mr. Robot. I went online and tried to find hacking software <laughs> to hack my own folder. Give us a tease, Hibbs. How long of a story are we are we looking at here? For word count geeks like myself, it, it's uh, four thousand five hundred words. It's it's definitely a long one. I think it's going to be spread across like ten pages. Uh, so it's it's a biggie. Yeah, it's uh, many months in, in, in the making. I I love this story. I really hope readers uh, enjoy it as well. We're going to move on now to a part of the show that we don't have an official name for yet, so we'll just call it The Mailbag, because as a reminder, everybody can email us at gotpodcast at ew.com. Let's start off here with uh, a question from uh, listener Gail Van Dale. She says, I'm wondering what's going on with the MIA characters. Where are Rickon, Osha, and Shaggy Dog? Are they going to return in season six? What about the direwolves we haven't seen? Arya's wolf, Nymeria, who has the same name as one of the Sand Snakes, coincidence? And Brandon's wolf, Summer. Also, where oh where is Gendry? Can I just point out here, James, this, this is a great question. These are a lot of characters who've been missing for a while. I can remember when they first introduced Theon's sister on the show. They had to change her name because they were worried people might confuse Asha Greyjoy with Osha the Wildling. Or Arya Stark, for that matter. Osha's been gone for years now, and clearly, clearly, as, as Gail nicely points out, there's no concern about the confusion between Wolf Nymeria and Sand Snake Nymeria. So come on, what's wrong with Osha Greyjoy? But uh, this is a good question. I, I feel like... We're, we're at the point now where MIA characters are going to start reappearing. We've already seen Bran return. And, you know, again, in our sort of, like, long view of, you know, what characters are going to become important, Rickon has always struck me as somebody who might be very important whenever he reappears. And when he reappears, he's going to be 10 years older at this point. <laughs> um, do you think we're going to see any of these characters again anytime soon, James? I do think that the poster art for this season is telling. You know, they have the Hall of Faces and they have all these characters from Game of Thrones in there. And they have characters that are currently alive and who are characters who are dead and characters we haven't seen in a while. It does seem to be a theme this season that this idea that we're we'll be seeing faces that we haven't necessarily seen in a while or that we thought we might never see again. I'm I'm excited about uh, seeing Gendry again, just because that was a uh, that that was an actor who I really enjoyed uh, playing a character who was not necessarily like that important in in the books and became quite important 
while he was around. I feel like he's opened up a bed and breakfast with uh, with like hot pie at this point. <laughs> well, but see, but see, this is the problem is that we thought that like the Brotherhood was going to be like really important. At least I certainly did because in the books, the Brotherhood is tied into Lady Stoneheart. But now that's all disappeared. So who knows? Someday we'll see Beric Dondarrion again. Uh, our next email comes from listener Bethany Brodigan. Uh, not a question, but a theory. I have a theory I'm surprised no one else has mentioned yet that I wanted to share with you guys. Danny is the breaker of chains, and she's heading into forced retirement with a bunch of, of Cal's widows, women who are likely strong and fierce and have seen battle and possibly been raped or forced into marriage as well. She will have instant connections with these women, and they're all being imprisoned. Danny has a history of setting people free. It's kind of her thing. Do you think she might foment some insurrection in the Dosh Kaleen? Maybe the women could take over. I love this idea. I especially like the idea that we're leading to a sort of, you know, Danny being like old school Wonder Woman leading not just an army, but an army of like totally badass, powerful women. That seems like given what we talked about last week, James, with, you know, the fact that we've been thrown right back into the just sort of totalitarian bro culture of the cows. I, I, I like the idea that this might be something that we're aiming towards. What are you excited about uh, from what we saw uh, of the preview for next week's episode? You know, I can't wait to see uh, Resurrected Jon Snow and sort of how they handle that storyline and what that plays like. I can't wait to see Sir Alistair Thorne's reaction to Jon Snow being alive. That, that's, that, that to me is just going to be fantastic. I will say that in terms of him being back, uh, both Kit Harrington and the producers had the conversation beforehand about, you know, if he dies and then comes back and nothing has changed about him, then ultimately the death didn't really serve a, a, a story or character purpose. So, you know, he's back, but you can definitely expect things not to be the same with John. I'm excited for that. Now it's time for the trivia portion of our show. Uh, all kinds of exciting prizes this year. Today's question. On last night's episode, for the first time ever, we met Bran's aunt and Ned's sister, Leanna. Hope I'm pronouncing that the right way. Um, Bran mentioned seeing Leanna's statue in the family crypt underneath Winterfell. In what episode of Game of Thrones did we first see... That statue, down in the family crypt. Hmm. Listeners, please send your answer to the trivia question at gotpodcast at ew.com. If you have any more questions or concerns about this episode that we didn't get into, email us there. Also, feel free to tweet us at James Hibbard and at Darren Franich. Uh, we will try to respond uh, on Twitter and on our next episode. And hey, listen, if, if you liked what, what you've heard here today, uh, please tell your friends about us. Spread the word. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a comment in iTunes. We love reading what you have to say. And uh, we look forward to talking more about the resurrected Jon Snow, some of the exciting new Greyjoys that are coming our way, and uh, everything else happening in the world of Westeros uh, next week here on the EW Game of Thrones podcast. 